Today's scripture lesson is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, not because it's uh, particularly joy-filled, it's a difficult story, um, but it's one of my favorite stories because it captures for us what a faithful life looks like. Um, not always uh, does it capture for us, uh, the whole thing is not David being faithful, but it shows us what it looks like to be moving towards faithfulness in the life and grace of God, and in the community of faith. So, you may remember last week, uh, John Foster talked to you about Mephibosheth, this uh, descendant of Saul, um, who was disabled, um, and whom David cared for. That's just one of many ways that the story of Samuel, from 1 Samuel to where we are now, has built David up as this virtuous and honorable, faithful king of Israel. He stands in sharp contrast to Saul, who's failed over and over again in his leadership, who relied on his own strength, his own strategy to win victories, rather than constantly discerning what it was that God was calling him to do. And Saul's madness led him further and further into lack of faith in God. David has been exactly the opposite. Over and over again, he's proved faithful. He's proved patient, waiting for God to carry out God's work, not taking it upon himself to do it. He's united the kingdoms of Israel. He's cared for Saul's family. Aside from a short period of time where he thought about fighting against the people of Israel when he was a fugitive, David has done all things well. And so we're a little bit surprised to run into this story today that begins in 2 Samuel 12. I'm going to tell you most of the story and then, um, I'm sorry, it begins in 2 Samuel 11. Um, I'm going to tell you most of the story and then we'll read just the very end of it together. So it's springtime. It's the time when kings are supposed to go to war. The winter has passed. It's warming up enough for folks to be sleeping outside in tents and it's time to go to war. David should be at war. But instead, he sends Joab, his commander, off to war, and David stays back in the palace. And then late one afternoon, David, while his men are away at war, rises from his couch and he goes to the roof of his house to walk around, and he spies a woman, and her beauty captures his imagination, and he wants her. He decides he must have her. So he sends his men to go and take her and to bring her back to him. David has already been uh, failing to fulfill his duties as a king by leading his men into battle, and now he's getting even more distracted. He and this woman, her name is Bathsheba, sleep together and he sends her home, and he thinks that that will be the end of the story, until she sends word that she's expecting a child, and the way the story plays out, he knows that the child must be his. Her husband is away at war where David should be and he sends for Uriah, her husband, to come home so that he can cover up his mistake. At first he welcomes Uriah heartily and says, come, take a day off, enjoy time at home, go and be with your wife and enjoy yourself. And Uriah thanks him for a day of rest and he goes and he sleeps just outside the king's gate. When David calls him in the next day and says, why didn't you go home? He says, I can't go home and sleep in my house and eat rich food and lay with my wife when all of my men are away at war. I can't do that. And so David tries again. This time he invites Uriah over for dinner and he gives him lots of rich food and he gives him lots of strong wine and he tries to send Uriah home again now with his inhibitions lowered just a little bit. 
And again, Uriah sleeps just outside the gate, refusing to go home. Uriah says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander and my comrades are camped in the fields. How can I go home and eat and drink and lie with my wife? And so because that doesn't work to cover up what David has done, neither time, these two nights, David fails. And so then he sends Uriah back to battle. And he sends him with a message that seals his fate. Uriah faithfully carries a message to his commander that says, when you go into battle, put Uriah out front. And while he's out front, when the battle grows especially strong, have the other men pull back and let Uriah be killed. And this happens, David receives word that Uriah has been killed and uh, he thinks that everything has been handled. But the writer of the story, the writer of Samuel, tells us that, gives us a sense that it's not over yet. At the very end of, um, of the chapter, it says, When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the Lord was displeased with the thing that David had done. So David thinks that all is well. He thinks that he's gotten away with it, that the perfect cover-up has happened, that he's going to make it just fine. His power has protected him from dealing with the consequences of his sin. But the Lord sends Nathan to David. Nathan, the same one that had to come and tell David that he would not be the one to build the Lord's temple, that that wasn't for him, but that the Lord was going to continue his throne for forever, that the Lord would never leave him or forsake him, that David would be the start of a dynasty to rule over Israel forever. This Nathan comes to David and he tells David, a story about two men. He says there was one man who was very rich. He had lots of lambs and sheep. He had lots of cattle. He had everything he could want. And there was another man who was poor. He had but one little ewe lamb that he loved, that he nursed it himself. He fed it. He, he, he loved it as if it were his own daughter, it says. And the rich man had a visitor come into town and he wanted to give the man a feast. And rather than giving one of his multitude of lambs, he took the lamb of the poor man and gave it to his visitor for dinner. And at this point, we'll pick up in chapter 12, verse 7. Well, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the rich man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. 
For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So David offers judgment upon himself. David thinks he's judging the man of Nathan's story and he is proud of his righteous judgment that this man should die. That this man should have to repay fourfold what he took from the poor man because not only did he do what was wrong, he had no pity. And Nathan says, you are the man. The judgment that you have offered on this person you do not know is really judgment of yourself. You have done this thing. You see, David thought that he'd put it behind him. He thought that he was finished with everything that had gone on, that he had figured everything out and tied everything up in a neat little bow and no one would ever have to know. He did it all in the dark and the secret and nobody would have to know what had really happened. Sometimes we like to think that we're beyond this sort of thing. That we don't have enough power to pull it off or even if we did that we wouldn't do it, that we would be virtuous enough to not fall into this sort of trap. That we wouldn't we wouldn't be derelict in our duties in the first place to the point that we found ourselves in a situation where temptation was a real possibility and then second of all, that we would ever give in to such temptation. We think that we're beyond this sort of thing. Good church folks, we'd never fall into this, but we aren't. We aren't as individuals and we aren't as a community, as a society. We aren't beyond a time when people, men and women, but especially men, use their power to exploit those under them. We don't know how Bathsheba felt about all of this. The text doesn't tell us, and that's exactly part of the point. This has nothing to do with her failure and everything to do with David's. David sees her. He wants her. He must have her. And so he sends his servants to take her. What she thinks about it plays no role in any of it. David uses his power to get what he wants. And that leads him deeper and deeper into sin. Over and over again, he tries harder and harder and acts more and more disgustingly to get what he wants. The story is not concerned with Bathsheba's guilt or innocence whether she did something to invite this kind of attention or whether she failed to deflect it. This is about David and his shortcomings and his abuse of power. This isn't the sort of story that you write as propaganda to make everybody love your king. Bathsheba doesn't have any say at all. She knows he could have her and her whole family killed if he wanted to. This isn't just the story of David. It's the story of Harvey Weinstein and the story of untold numbers of politicians, the story of employers and supervisors, the story of, sadly, some ministers and priests and pastors 
who take advantage of the vulnerabilities of those under their care. And it's entirely unacceptable. And the places that it leads are progressively darker and more riddled with sin and more shocking and abhorrent to anyone who sits on the outside. While this particular form isn't what affects all of us, it does affect almost every aspect of society. Abuse of power and adultery and murder might not be your story or my story, but sin in this way is all of our stories. Nathan, Nathan is the hero of this story, not David. Nathan, at great personal risk, David has already killed to cover up this story from getting out. Nathan goes to his friend and his king, and he speaks to him in a manner that David can hear. Notice that he doesn't go and simply accuse him and try to guilt him and shame him or blackmail him or something else into doing the right thing. Nathan finds a way in the midst of their relationship to, to help David to see the real weight of the wrong that he has done. Not just the adultery, not just the killing, not just any of it, but all of it where David has forsaken the Lord, scorned the Lord and his commandments. Nathan speaks in a manner that conveys the real weight of the wrong that David has done. And this is our call as the community of faith as well. To lead people to judge themselves as the Lord judges them. It's not to make them feel our own judgment, to make them feel shame that they don't measure up to our standards, to make them think that we think we are better than they are because we haven't made the same mistakes that they have made. But it doesn't mean that we have nothing to say at all in the face of deep or even what seems at first to be shallow sin. We are called as the community of faith to judge the actions, though not the state of the, of the souls of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to lead them not only to guilt, because guilt is not the goal. We are called to lead them to repentance. Judgment is never the final word in the life of faith, in the truth of the gospel. The final word is always grace. It is always life. It is always hope. These are the final words of faith. So this story sets for us David as an honorable king. Not in this case because he acts with virtue at every moment, but in this case because he can listen to his friend who calls him to account for his actions. And when he recognizes what he has done, he can say, I have sinned against the Lord. This is an example of faithfulness, not of the perfection that we think we should, we should maintain or strive towards, but the sort of faithfulness that all of us can abide in. The faithfulness that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our temptations, in the midst of our sin, still we can recognize our wrongs. Still we can own it for what it is. Sin against God and God's people. And then we can confess and seek forgiveness 
and do everything we can to make it right. It's not enough just to to say to the Lord that we've done something wrong, but to truly repent is to seek to make it right as much as we are able in every way we can. Today is All Saints Day. We remember all of those who have gone before us whose light, who, in whom the light of Christ has shown that we might know God's love and grace through their faithfulness. We remember particularly those who have died in this congregation in the last year. We remember Jeannie Rabb who died just before All Saints Day last year. We remember Bill Dees and we remember Helen Dye. And all of your loved ones who maybe aren't a close part of this congregation but have deeply affected your lives as well. You see, we don't become saints by getting it all right every time, all the time. Saints are not people who've done everything perfectly at every moment. Saints are those who've experienced God's grace to the point that they know that they are forgiven that they've learned what it means to abide in God's grace even beyond their own capacity to live up to God's law, who know what it means in Christ to be forgiven, to be restored, to be made holy. Saints are these who know what it is to be forgiven, and they're those who, like Nathan, seek desperately to lead others to that place of being restored to God even when it includes confronting difficult truths that our friends, that our brothers and our sisters, maybe even people in our biological families don't want to confront about who they are and what they've done. This isn't so that they will feel guilty. It's so that they might know the hope of the gospel that comes in the fullness of forgiveness. This is what I need today, and it's what you need as well. To recognize that you are a person called to confess your shortcomings. To realize that you are a person for whom God's grace is sufficient. And to go into the world to offer that word of grace to others. This is what it means to be saints. This is the faith which we have inherited from those who've gone before us. Let's pray. Lord, even when we think